0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway, connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Look, the stuff we do as economists, if it's weird enough and has some basis, forces people to think differently from the way they had before. And people do not like to think differently. It requires sort of a jarring of their preconceptions. And to me, that's what we should be doing. We should be jarring people's preconceptions. So if you're born gorgeous, you'll have an advantage and you'll do things that take advantage of it. If you're pretty bad looking, you'll do things and take advantage of other characteristics that you have that will help you get ahead. I think with a good teacher who's willing to spend a little bit of time thinking about things and doing fun topics, which economic can be useful for, I think the students can be kept very interested. To me, if the students aren't interested, the professor's doing a lousy job. Hi, Frank Comber here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast.
1: I'm so honored to have Professor Dan Amramish join me today. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Dan Hammermesh is Professor in Economics at the Royal Holloway University of London and Professor in the Foundation of Economics at the University of Texas at Austin. He received his PhD from Yale and has since taught at Princeton and Michigan State and at Texas. He has held visiting professorships at universities in North America, Europe, Australia and Asia and lectured at almost 250 universities in 48 states and 33 foreign countries. His research, published in nearly 100 refereed papers and scholarly journals, has concentrated on time use, labour demand, discrimination, academic labour markets and unusual applications of labour economics to beauty, sleep and suicide. Professor Hammermish has received many notable and distinguished honours and awards in a recognition for his contribution to the field of economics. These include the Mincer Award and the IZA Prize in Labour Economics the John Orr Commons Award, as well as many Teaching of Excellence Awards. Dan's teaching include Microeconomics, Macroeconomics, Econometrics, Economics of Labour and Economics of Life. Dan is the author of many books, including Demand for Labour, The Neglected Side of the Market, Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful and Economics is Everywhere. He's also a regular contributor to the Free Economics blog and podcast. Dan, what
0: brought an interest of economics to you? Well, what got me interested initially, actually, was a high school class when I was 17, where the teacher had us read a book called The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbroner, which is basically biographies of a number of economists of the last several hundred years. And the neat thing was that I saw in it that they could both use mathematical modeling, but also deal with real world problems. And both of those things appealed me tremendously and still do. This whole
1: concept of economics, where you actually bring it into the unusual aspects of life, has that stemmed from looking at that book? What you've done over your lifetime is quite different to what other economists would have taken on.
0: Well, it is different. The beauty of economics is that it has a theoretical basis. In other words, you can't Come up with an explanation for strange things. You have some maximizing framework, but with that maximizing framework, you can predict things that nobody in any other social science or anybody out in the real world would be able to predict and be able to understand. This makes you think in a certain way, but that certain way is very, very powerful. And the fact that you can apply it to all kinds of bizarre things, as I certainly have over my lifetime, I think makes it especially useful and also especially fun, too. You mentioned it makes you think. Is this something that you ingrain into your own students? I try. Uh, in my introductory class, I've taught over 20,000 students in introductory economics, mostly micro-principles, I try to give them the idea that we're not just learning something dry and to do examples and problems. Rather, I try to get them to use it and think about the real world that they face in their own lives. To that end, in fact, for the last six or seven years, I've had the students write a one page story using some of the economic ideas to explain something that they see in their own lives. And the virtue of that, aside from the fact that it gets them to think It also means I can steal some of the best papers and modify them and use them in my book, Economics is Everywhere.
1: So is that the role of a professor of economics that you can take advantage of some of the papers that your (laughs) students have?
0: (laughs) Well, we like to think a term take advantage is not the one I would use. Rather, I'd like to say mutual learning, although clearly most of the learning ought to flow from the professor to the student. But you do get things from them. I've even had at least one paper Just clearly uh, inspired by something I did in introductory microeconomics. The paper had to do with thinking about the nature of the um, famine in Genesis, where Joseph helps the pharaoh store grain in order to make up and to, to have sufficient food during bad times. And Joseph was doing what we call speculating. The question was, how much grain should he set aside and what it did it imply? So that was a clear-cut case for my teaching fed into my research. And yet the research also helps us think about things for class too. So that was a two-way benefit, I thought. And there have been a few others like that also.
1: And that biblical story relates, I suppose, to the Keynesian economics whereby we should actually follow a countercyclical policy?
0: Well, I, I don't think that is very policy-related today. It's rather has to do with thinking about how a ruler thinks about his subjects. In that case, how much did the pharaoh care about stuffing people's faces in good times? How much did he care about having them avoid too much starvation in bad times? So it's an issue of what we call intertemporal maximization, making the best you can over a long period of time.
1: Economics has always been troublesome for students, but there's plenty of work done out there, like your own work, and we'll talk about your book soon, Beauty Pays, but also with economics and with other guests that I've spoken to, they've brought a totally new twist to economics. And this is all built on the work of, say, Gary Becker and others who've gone before him and after him. Should we be using different understandings or different examples in our teaching of economics, or should we stick with the textbook and fall
0: into the old perception that economics is a dismal science? Absolutely clear on that one. I find anybody who tells me, that which happens all the time at parties or in conversations, where somebody says, gee, economics was my worst subject in college, I hated it. Uh, To me, all that tells me is that they had a bad, boring professor who didn't realize there's much more use to it, much more fun to be had out of it than, in fact, is available in most textbooks. Although I must say these days, a lot of the textbooks have gotten to be much more interesting than they were when I started teaching this stuff in 1968. So I think there's a lot of hope for this. I mean, I think with a good teacher who's willing to spend a little bit of time thinking about things and doing fun topics, which use, economic can be useful for, I think the students can be kept very interested. To me, if the students aren't interested, the professor is doing a lousy job. The
1: economics that you teach when you say you just taught 20,000 students for introductory microeconomics. Is this a compulsory module, or is this based on an elective or a choice that they actually make? Maybe they've got word on your teaching that they'd like to actually have you as their professor.
0: Well, that's a very flattering way to think. Uh, I like to think there's some of that, certainly, because at Texas, uh, where I taught for 21 years, it's the case that they can choose different faculty. Although I've learned with students, you know, they may pay a little bit of attention to the, what the professors like in the class, but most of them will pick a class for the time it meets. In other words, is it convenient for them? Maybe a few of them will pick me because they've heard good things about me. But for most of them, it's the class they can get when they want to get it.
1: Before we go on and talk about your whole area of economics that you're interested in, could we get an understanding of your influencers?
0: Oh, Well, you mentioned the main intellectual influence, which is certainly Gary Becker. I mean, one might well say that a lot of my stuff is the weird kind of stuff that Becker pioneered. Others might say that's economics imperialism. But to me, it's just using economics in novel, interesting ways. So anybody looking at my work would say, well, clearly it stems from Becker. The other influences, I think, were a labor economist named Greg Lewis, taught at the University of Chicago when I was an undergraduate and for years thereafter. He, in fact, was Becker's dissertation advisor. He was a dissertation advisor to Bob Lucas, another Nobel Prize winner. And I worked for him as a research assistant for two years, 63 through 65, and took his class in labor economics. And the man had a concern about data, about doing it right, making sure you were right which I hope to think, like to think, has rubbed off on me a little bit. And I think that's a crucial thing. One has to take data seriously.
1: You were mentioned in episode 22 with Josh Angrist. So, you know, I was very interested in what Josh had to say about you, albeit it was only a small segment. But I made a beeline immediately after to check you out and reach out to you. And Josh also found mm-hmm. the, the inf- strong influence of Gary Becker and, like that, I had a previous guest on episode 14, Shoshana Grossbard, who worked with Gary Becker. I'm not sure if you're aware of her, but she's worked. Of in the, course, of course I have. OK, she's worked also in the area of labour economics, too. When you get to a certain level in academia, there's a very close-knit community of professors and academics who tend to work in very unique or. Niche areas in the research. We're extremely grateful for the likes of yourself to bring out publications and books to the masses that allows economics to be brought to the attention of those who would never have got the education in that or may not have considered it. And we see that with the success of free economics, too.
0: I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, to me, we don't do good hiding our light under a bushel. I mean, I would hope that most people doing economics, and if they're successful at publishing in scholarly journals, the stuff should have some relevance for the real world, and one should be able to explain it to the layperson. To me, if you can't explain your stuff to the layperson, Well, maybe you don't understand it very well, but I think everything that anybody in economics publishes in a scholarly journal, they should be able to summarize in about three sentences in a way that their spouses or partners can understand.
1: In episode 21, I spoke to Professor Paul Dolan of the London School of Economics, and we spoke about the economics of happiness, and this is something that you touch on in one of your books, Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful. I'm quite interested in your perspective of happiness. Do you equate beauty with happiness?
0: Well, we have a paper on this after that book was published. I published a paper in a scholarly journal where we looked at data for four countries, including the UK, US, Germany, and I think Australia, maybe not, no, Canada. And we asked the question whether beautiful people are happier and and what the channels are by which that extra happiness occurs. And we found quite uniformly that the beautiful people are happier, despite what you might think that, oh, the poor, good-looking person, she's so upset, blah, blah, blah. That's just rubbish. It isn't true. The interesting thing was, however, that among men, better-looking men were happier to a large extent because their looks raised their incomes and their incomes made them happier. For women, it was much more, direct it wasn't that their looks raised their income although it did it's rather just being good looking made them feel good in other words the beauty itself is more directly salient to them than it was for men even though the overall effect was identical for both genders and how do these
1: people recognize that they're beautiful and how they may take advantage of that so first i suppose it's the recognition issue
0: Well, but but one has reinforced one's entire life. Better-looking babies are treated better by their parents and by other people. Better-looking five-year-olds are treated better in kindergarten than ugly ones. When you're chosen for teams or go out in high school, the better looking people do better. And they also, given even how much education they attained, they'll do better. This is a subject of a lot of my work and now a lot of other people's. They'll do better in the labor market. They'll get better jobs, make higher pay, even within the same occupation. I've now seen studies for a large a variety of individual occupations, including attorneys, prostitutes, politicians, National Football League quarterbacks, a whole bunch of them. And within each occupation, if you look at people who are otherwise identical, the better-looking person is going to be doing better. So it's made apparent to us at every stage of our lives.
1: You're obviously well used to uh, speaking about this, the separation between happiness and ugliness. Um, for somebody who, like myself who is talking about this the first time, it almost feels derogatory. How do people react first time when you wrote about these papers? <laughs>
0: well yeah we did our first paper it was actually talked about in the media in 1993 it was published in late 94 some people felt that wasn't a topic that economists should be working on but they said the same thing about a paper i published on suicide in 1974 and a paper i published on sleep in 1990 look the stuff we do as economists if it's weird enough and has some basis forces people to think differently from the way they had before. And people do not like to think differently. It requires sort a of j- jarring of their preconceptions. And to me, that's what we should be doing. We should be jarring people's preconceptions.
1: We can't hide from the fact or ignore the possibility that beauty does benefit some people or most people who are beautiful. Uh, and you've testified that in terms of your research that you've done even in the labor
0: market? Well, especially in the labor market. I mean, there have been a couple of other studies done sort of on strange small groups, but our first study was a comprehensive random samples of people in the U.S. and Canada and thought deeply about what other channels might be confounding the impact of beauty and the fact that we found these substantial effects independent of all those other channels. Regardless, I think affected how people think about beauty. I mean, I occasionally, uh, somebody on the on a plane will ask me what I do, and I say, well, I've published this stuff that's gotten a fair amount of attention about the role of beauty in people's pay. And a remarkable uh, number of people who have nothing to do with economics have seen that in the media. So this hasn't affected policy, but it has affected the way a lot of people think about the world. And to me, that's the most important thing we do.
1: Could you put a figure on this premium or this beauty premium, as you might refer to it as, in terms of wages? Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're talking over a lifetime compared to the average person. A good looker, top third, might be getting anywhere from, uh, Oh well, let's compare the top third of people to the bottom six. The difference will be well over 10 percent, 10 or 12 percent, independent of any other differences that might exist between these two people.
1: Wow. That's quite significant, especially over a lifetime.
0: Oh, yeah. It's a heck of a lot of money. Mm. I've seen studies doing this and summarize them in uh, where in Australia, China us canada uk germany and i think france also has been shown to be ubiquitous across the developed world
1: you mentioned those countries there the developed world and a developing country like china is it once we develop as a country in terms of our economy and we're exposed to a lot of the products that are sold to us on the media and television on the internet and so on and we have more disposable income available to us does that bring about a need or a desire for people to look more beautiful because they know that they will possibly get ahead in life or they might feel an inner happiness?
0: I think people do feel that they have that increased need, but it's quite clear that there's really very, very little you can do. One of our studies looked at the impact of women in spending on cosmetics, hair, and clothing and how it affected their perceived beauty and whether it paid off in the labor market. And the impacts were quite minimal. Another couple of studies have looked looked at the role of plastic surgery in altering beauty and looking at whether it's a good investment in terms of just more money earned. And the answer is clearly not. This doesn't mean you shouldn't dress up nice, take care of yourself, but you do it to help yourself feel good. It's not an economic investment. It's a feel-good investment.
1: But for men, it's an economic investment,
0: I'm sure. But no, not really, because in fact, it doesn't, spending money on your looks doesn't really make you that much more good looking. You do your best with what you got. So if you're born gorgeous, you'll have an advantage and you'll do things that take advantage of it. If you're pretty bad looking, you'll do things and take advantage of other characteristics that you have that will help you get ahead.
1: You mentioned in your book also that you believe that there
0: should be some kind of protectionism for... (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten a lot of trouble on that. If you read the book, I did not say that. I have been vilified by all kinds of right-wing people. I know you're not vilifying me. I didn't say that. All I said was, let's think about it. And I argued that, you know, if beauty is very hard to change... Why should it be treated any differently from some other characteristic, which is hard to change? In fact, I don't want that kind of protection because there are other groups for whom I'd rather spend our political energy protecting them, minorities, women, disabled people. But logically, I see very, very little difference in the justification for protecting one group rather than another. Following
1: on from that, I suppose it has an indirect association with it. In Ireland now, and it's also the same in the UK, I'm sure it's the same in the United States. In Ireland recently, obesity has been recognised as a disability. And people who are classified as obese could claim a disability benefit. Now, I'm sure obesity people can correct me if I'm wrong, it might hide a beauty of a person because of the weight. And if that weight has actually dropped, they lose the benefit or they get the beauty in terms of the premium possibly back.
0: Well, In fact, unless a person is really morbidly obese, people do not view him or her as being any uglier than anybody else, all things taken together. So these things are not very well correlated. The obesity thing is really something quite different from beauty in most cases. There have been a number of studies of that. Indeed, in several of my own studies, I've asked the question, is the impact of beauty on wages simply mediated by obesity? And the answer is essentially not at all. They're independent.
1: All right. Also, you mentioned about wages, uh, men possibly being earning a higher wage based on their looks, and so too women so is there a relationship between ugliness and where a person actually lives because if people tend not to earn a higher wage they may live in more disadvantaged areas and I'm assuming based on that or if it's a crude assumption to make that people in disadvantaged areas may not be as beautiful as
0: I think these effects are important, but I mean, it's only one of many, many, many effects that determines our income. So, yes, there's probably some impact on where you live. I think it's actually more subtle than that. In our most recent study, we had data for the UK on where people were born and grew up and where they currently lived as 30, 40 or 50 year olds. And you think about let's say you're a good looking person. You're going to flock to an area where your looks pay off more, And if you're a bad-looking person, you might want to go away from an area where looks pay off. In fact, in the UK, the people who are born in Scotland and Wales, if they're good-looking, are more likely to migrate to Southeast England, i.e. London, than other people. And on the other side of the coin, people born in Southeast England, i.e. London, who are bad-looking, appear to tend to move to more outlying areas where their looks aren't so important. So it affects not just where we live in terms of what we make, but where we choose to live in terms of spending our adult lives. And this doesn't surprise me. You think about the role of economic incentives. This is just what you expect to happen.
1: Yeah, and the wage, I suppose, is higher
0: as well in the likes of London too. Well, it's not just the wage is higher. The impact of your beauty is higher. So you'll go where you get the biggest bang for the buck, in this case, the biggest bang in pounds for your beauty. So it's again, it's a matter of thinking about incentives and people making decisions at the margin.
1: How do you help people recognize their beauty and to take advantage of such a thing?
0: That's, that's really not an economic question. So no. I just don't worry about that. It's not something I pay attention to. My interest in thinking about the incentives that looks or lack thereof, create for people to choose behaviors in markets. I mean, again, to me, economics is about markets and the incentives in markets that I spend my time studying.
1: And what got you interested in beauty in the first place?
0: Oh, very simple. I mean, I happened to be doing another project in the early 90s where I had some data set, not one that I'd collected, but a large national survey. And I noticed that in it, there was a question where the interviewer was asked to rate the beauty of the interviewee. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to think about the economic impacts of this? And this started a large series of papers. I did the seven papers I published over the 20-year period, plus the 2011 book, Beauty Pays. But it all got started by seeing some data, which I thought would be fun to look at. Indeed, a lot of my projects have gotten started that way, going back all the way to my PhD thesis in the middle, late nine sixties.
1: You mentioned there are the wage markets. Are there any other economic markets where beauty might be present in?
0: Oh, yeah, there have been studies. I mean, there's a very obvious one, and that is the market for marriage spouses. There's no question for a good-looking woman, and that's a bunch of evidence on this, including some of my own work, a good-looking woman will attract a husband who's going to earn more. In other words, to some extent, a woman is trading her looks in the marriage market for a man's earnings ability i like to think that over time as women and men become more equal in the job market that that kind of trade will go both ways and good-looking guys will be trading their looks to women who can bring a lot of money into the marriage so the marriage market certainly won another market and there have been a few studies on that is the market for unsecured loans you're better looking you're more likely to get the loan and you're going to get it on better terms than an ugly person will
1: And have you any personal experience in terms of the marriage market, Dan?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I specifically avoided one of my studies actually involved attorneys who had graduated from a particular school and it happened that my wife would have been one of the people in this sample and I specifically threw her out of the sample (laughs) because I didn't want A, to have to say that, gee, she's one of my people and B, I didn't want People who are rating the looks of people looking at photographs to be looking at my wife's photograph and deciding that she was good looking or not. Now, in fact, the book Beauty Pays is dedicated to her. And at the end of the dedication, I quote Keats's poem. She walks in beauty like the night. And so I think she's fantastic.
1: And it seems ironic when you say she walks in beauty because just doing the research on yourself, I found out how you actually met and you weren't able to walk properly yourself at the time.
0: (laughs) I had broken my foot playing handball, which is stupid. And (laughs) uh, I mean, well, handball, handball in America is like a game of squash with no racket. And I just came down the side of my foot and I picked her up because I took advantage of her sympathy for a cripple. And got her to carry my books across campus. I had seen her before and I didn't know how to introduce myself to her. But I figured as a cripple, if she doesn't want to carry my books, I don't want to deal with her because she's a bad person. I couldn't ask her out on a date directly because I was pretty forward. And so I figured picking up, carrying my books would be a good way to get her, uh, to talk to me and spend some time together. That was October 1965. Wow. That we did that. And we got married about 15 months later. We've been married ever since, have two children, and we have grandchildren, six of them, ages 19 to nine. Wow.
1: Congratulations. Thank you, sir. I just want to go back to the labor market again, if you don't mind. Sure. The company Abercrombie and Fitch, you're aware of it, the US company? <laughs> You you laugh because I I think you know what I'm going to ask you here. They've been quite. Oh yeah, they've been criticised over their hiring policy. They want to hire males that have six packs. And
0: (laughs) by the way, I have a six pack too. It's in my fridge. It's the beer I have. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: (laughs) They've been criticised. Do you agree with the policy? Can you see where he's
0: coming from? Uh, Look, I mean, as long as we have no particular laws outlawing that kind of behavior companies are going to do it is it morally right no does it help them maximize their profits yes and that's why they do it but until we have laws or regulations prohibiting that i see no argument against it i think it's wrong i think it's discriminatory but it is not against the law and the law is what should prevail always
1: Could there be a case whereby if people are hiring, they would intentionally not pick the most beautiful person? Have you ever come across any studies like that before?
0: I've seen two cases where people have come up with research that says that's the case. In one case, one of my own studies suggested that the very best looking young female attorneys made partner that has got tenure in their law firms, if you will, more slowly. That's the very, very top Another study which sent out fake resumes with pictures suggests that was the same thing for very, very good-looking women with pictures on fake resumes. But other than that, every other study, including most of my own, finds that every increase in your looks makes you more likely to get the job and more likely to get high pay. So what you're calling is what I call the bimbo effect, and I just don't think it's very important.
1: Because it could have a, an impact on hiring a nanny.
0: Well, it's everywhere. This is a ubiquitous behavior. To me, why it exists is the more important question. I like to think it's left over from the fact that it used to be that looks was a signal of health, and health was important for marriage and reproduction. But these days, we're all pretty healthy in rich countries, and we can all reproduce like rabbits, be it good-looking or bad-looking, given the chance. So this is really a leftover from the jungle. And I hope that someday these attitudes disappear, not in my lifetime, but perhaps in my grandchildren's.
1: When companies are hiring, they, in a way, with the competition there, there's almost a theory of comparative advantage.
0: It's really a matter of sorting. I mean, people are going to go to where they get the most. And on the other side of the market, employers where beauty will matter the most are going to be the ones who are going to search most thoroughly for good-looking workers. So like any other characteristic, It exists on both sides of the market. It's traded in the market implicitly, and it commands a a rate of premium with the size of the premium, depending upon the extent of supply and the degree and importance of demand. So it's a market, but it's a market for an implicit characteristic that we all embody to greater or lesser extent.
1: I'm not sure what it's like in the US or the UK, but in Ireland, in the public sector, say in the teaching professions and and nursing and so on. There's a restriction in terms of how far you can go based on pay. You wouldn't get your bonuses or any commissions or anything like that. It's a fixed salary. If some of your students came to you tomorrow and they wanted you to cut to the chase and define them as either beautiful or ugly and where should they go would you recommend a beautiful person not to go into the public sector and maybe go to somewhere <laughs> like a multinational corporation where there's many opportunities that exist for you to maybe grow quicker based on their own looks?
0: Well, I would never recommend a student to do anything based on looks. I'd never even comment on a student looks, but the phenomenon you're describing is something that we observed clearly in one of our studies. We looked at attorneys recently out of law school and then further into their careers and what we saw is that over time the bad-looking attorneys who were working in the private sector tended to migrate over their careers toward the public sector And on the opposite side of the coin, the good looking attorneys who started off in the public sector apparently realized they could do better in the private sector and tended to move to the private sector. So I think I don't need to advise anybody Mm. judging by people's behavior. They understand it full well and take advantage of their good looks or avoid things that might penalize their bad looks.
1: This must be very difficult to be living in a society for everybody from the moment we're born people are entered into or do not enter into beauty baby competitions. And then you have pageants and then you're moving on beyond that to Miss Universe or Mr. Universe. It's all, I suppose on social media and magazines, television, we're bombarded with the most beautiful or most symmetrical type of features and we're all thriving. Well, we're not all thriving, but some people would fall into the trap of wanting to look like a star or someone that's photoshopped on a magazine. How should people that feel they don't fit into this beauty definition, what have you found these people do in order to increase their well-being or possibly their wage levels? Should they concentrate on other talents that they may have?
0: If Precisely. You know? You always stress and move toward things that will take advantage of your characteristics. So if you're not good looking, maybe you're athletic. Maybe you're very intelligent. Maybe you're strong. Maybe you've got a sparkling personality. This is just one of many, many things that affects how well we do. And I think people are very, very well aware of what their skills and advantages are. And I like to think they take advantage of them. I mean, even if you're bad looking, if you're fascinated about the thought of becoming an actor, you will do it. Not all actors are gorgeous. There are a lot of sort of average at best looking actors. You take advantage of A, the things you've got in terms of characteristics and B, the interest you have in doing things. And this is just one of many, many characteristics that affects our choices and affects how the job market and other markets treat us.
1: I know it seems, maybe to some listeners, that what we're talking about is quite shallow. We're talking about beauty and ugliness, but it's just, as you mentioned there, maybe holding other things constant. You have also other characteristics that people actually thrive on and are very successful at, and they do not define people based on their looks. But inherently, there is evidence that that actually happens, even on TV shows In Ireland, for example, there's a TV show called Operation Transformation. You have something similar in the US as well, The Biggest Loser. People go to these shows overweight and they feel miserable and unhappy. And as they go through the whole process, they feel so much confident in themselves. They've lost weight. They feel happier. They feel more beautiful, even if it might be only a psychological thing that they hadn't felt beautiful before that. It's inherent in our society and it definitely falls into a lot of areas in economics too that helps explain all
0: of this. Indeed but it's just again beauty is just one of many many things that affects how we do and how we feel so I would not pay it that much attention.
1: And another book that you have economics is everywhere you highlight a couple of tips that we should actually hunt for in order to look for some of these economic concepts could you maybe give me one or two examples?
0: Well, look. Almost most probably, stop, a remarkable number of movies have economic themes, even though we don't think about them as economic. So I would look in the movies. not not movies that are directly about economics, but that just seem to have economics in them. I would, for example, one of my favorite brand new things I just noticed living in England here. So I'm in England, and I think it's true in Ireland. What side of the road do you drive on? You drive on the left, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. You drive on the on the left hand side. Correct. Now, the question is, what side of the sidewalk should you walk on in the U.S.? There's no question. Everybody walks on the right. The problem in England is there's so especially in London, there's so darn many tourists. that it's completely chaos around Piccadilly Circus. Nobody knows where to walk. They're bumping into each other. The problem is, this is what we call in economics a coordination externality. But I was entering rush hour in a major train station, Clapham Junction, a couple of weeks ago. And there, everybody was walking very nicely on the left. No problem at all. And the reason was very simple. All the people in rush hour were going to work, and they're all UK citizens or residents and they all walked on the left as they should. And so did I. So this is a question of how do we coordinate our activities? And it depends upon what our backgrounds are. So here's a case where externality, an economic jargon term, is something you can observe out there in the real world, depending upon the mix of people who are running around walking in the middle of these stations or walking in Piccadilly. That's just one of many examples. I see them all the time.
1: You are an avid runner or long-distance runner. Do you continue that, or do you have any other personal
0: habits to help you get things done? Well, I, I, there's a lot of things I can't talk about in public, obviously. <laughs> okay. okay. But but in it, terms it, of other things, I, I I read a lot. I mean, I don't watch television. I watch almost no sports. Basically, we run, we read. And when we're in London or New York, we spend a couple of months in New York each year. We go to the theater a lot. I mean, we're partly retired. We, My wife and I both worked. Oh, I've been working since I was 25. She worked about 30 years, too. And we saved an awful lot. And, you know, if you're healthy and old, as we are, we're 72 this year. Wow. Being healthy in 72 is a darn good thing. Yeah, uh, being 72 ain't so great. Believe me, I'd rather be 60 again because my running times were a lot faster then than they are now. Mm-hmm. But to have the time and the money and still be healthy enough to do something, I think we're extremely fortunate. We try to take advantage of that as much as possible.
1: Economics aside, if you were able to speak to yourself maybe 30 years back, what advice would you give yourself?
0: <laughs> well, it have to be a further back than that. I've been on the same track really since the middle 1960s. I would say to anybody, I tell students this, do what you think you'll enjoy, because if you think you'll enjoy it, the odds are pretty good you'll do well at it because you'll be motivated to work hard and to succeed. I mean, I hate to see students going into something because their parents say they'll make a lot of money at it. That's a guarantee for eventual burnout and lack of success. So doing what you enjoy, I think, is the most important thing of all in career decisions or most any decision we make. I
1: think that's an amazing takeaway. Do what you enjoy. Fantastic. Do you have a recommended book that you'd like to share with our listeners? Other than your own, I'll put all your own books (laughs) on (laughs) the show.
0: All my books, of course. That's that's biased. Let's see. What have I done? Economics books. Well, you know, the book that got me interested has been in many more editions, not recently because the chap passed away about a decade ago. But reading Robert Heilbroner's The Worldly Philosophers, is not a bad thing. I mean, it's a great way to get a feel for economics. What's the other one? Michael Lewis, the book about baseball. Yeah. The, the main book, made in the movie with Brad Moneyball. Moneyball,
1: yeah.
0: That's a great way to get a feel for how economics is used. It's really a book about economics and statistics. These are a few of the ones which I find very, very useful for people. I mean, they're fun economics books to read. And indeed, I assigned those and a couple of others in some reading group for 18-year-old freshmen, smart freshmen that I ran for five years ago. So those are just a couple that I'd recommend.
1: Fantastic. Do you have any internet resource that you'd like to share with us?
0: Um, you know, I'm not the biggest internet person. I mean, I'm on the web a lot. I'm using... I don't... I look at my Facebook account once a week. That shows how tied I am to these things. I'm the wrong guy to ask about that, I'm afraid. And um,
1: what about a takeaway?
0: The takeaway... Um, Well, I I think the do what you enjoy is the best takeaway to leave you with. I think that's really the important idea. If that's advice that people follow, I think the world would be a heck of a lot happier.
1: Totally agree. Dan, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. You are an Economic Rockstar, Dan. Thank Thank you. Thank you for being so generous with your time.